Welcome to the December issue of Disability and Podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Associate Producer Paul Wilshaw chats with writer and actor Chris Hannan about Panto. I know he isn't. Oh, yes, he is. Indeed, he does talk about Panto to Chris Hannan. They discuss the representation of disability in Pantos and how Chris makes Pantos more inclusive. Hello and welcome to the Disability Hour podcast. Today it is my great honour to have Chris Hannon, who is an actor, a writer, he's been in Coronation Street, Doc, and a major thing for me is that he's the dame in Wakefield Theatres and he's been doing that for 13 years now. So, welcome to Disability Town Podcast, Chris. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. So, Chris, Pantomime has a long tradition, a really long tradition, and not all, unfortunately, has been good around representation around disabled characters and um, e.g. Captain Hook, the Seven Dwarfs in Snow White, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. So we really want to talk about those in later on. But as an actor, you're also um, I'll be talking to you about relaxed performances. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, what is it like to perform in a relaxed performance? Because I expect it's a completely different atmosphere. Well, it is and it isn't. So the experience as an actor on stage is is slightly different because obviously the house lights, the lights in the auditorium, it's not the audience aren't sitting in pitch black. The house lights are slightly raised, so you can see more of the audience than you normally would be able to. And also the uh, the volume of the sound effects uh, is it's not as loud as it normally would be because some of those very loud sound moments might sort of uh, be too intimidating to an audience at a relaxed performance. So those elements technically feel different. We also have to tweak a few things at Wakefield. Like there's always a bit every year when we have a, a routine called the 12 Days of Christmas and it ends with us getting water pistols out and soaking the audience. But at a relaxed performance, there's a lot of people who wouldn't like to be sprayed with water. I mean, on a, on a practical level, you've got some people there with very complex physical needs and they might have feeding tubes. So there's a chance that if you spray them with a water pistol, you're going to knock the feeding tube out. And that is obviously something we shouldn't be doing. For that moment, we get one of our front of house volunteers, the stewards who check your tickets. There's one guy every year who does it called Terry, who's lovely. And he volunteers to come right down to the front of the auditorium by the stage and we just soak him <laughs> rather than soaking the audience. And there's three of us with super soakers, so the guy's drenched. Oh, I love it. Um, so in that way, it's different, but I think... I think Panto is one of the times when that doesn't feel unusual because Panto is the sort of show where you're you're literally asking the audience to make noise and join in and participate. So it it never feels that unusual. There's more noise than you would get because um, with a, a non-relaxed performance, you're giving the audience cues for when to interact. So it's behind you. Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, yes, it is. Whereas in a relaxed performance, there's there's noise the whole way through. But it doesn't it doesn't feel strange. And then pantos are shows that are advertised as being for everyone, for the whole family. They're from, you know, you can be six or 100 years old and it's there's something in it for you. So of any kind of art form, I think it's most important that panto has 
relaxed performances. I mean, any production anywhere should be making itself accessible at the minute. I'm doing a show at Sheffield Crucible, and this week we've got a relaxed performance, a BSL sign performance, a caption performance, and an audio described performance. And they've made every effort to be as accessible as they can, and I think every theatre should be doing that. Yeah, that's an interesting thing of where I do believe that relaxed performances are so, so great. However, it seems that the theatres seem to only put on like one relaxed performance. So if you're disabled, you have to specifically make sure that you're going on that day. Yeah, true. And I think um, theatres need to do a bit more in that sense. Yeah, I, I suppose having more relaxed performances has a, a kind of a, a financial cost implication for the theatre and a lot of it will come down to money. And it, maybe if there were more subsidy for relaxed performances, that risk could be subsidised more. Maybe theatres would be willing to have more of them. I don't know, but I think you're you're right. I'd not considered that before. It's definitely a, it's a thing, so isn't it? So yeah. Arts Council, if you do listen to a Disability <laughs> and podcast, get more subsidies Thank you. for it. <laughs> And with Panto, it is a really interesting thing. Of that is the most relaxed that I usually am. It's like it relaxed performances um, and just performances in general with Panto cheer me up so much. There are no yeah. rules, are there? As a Panto no. audience, it's not like watching a very serious straight piece of theatre where you just got to be very passive and just watch. You're you're asked to participate. That's one of the great things about it, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And it is interesting around the thing of relaxed performances because the whole point is I would love to know who wants to go to an uptight performance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's so yeah, I really think that's interesting. It's like when we're all saying Oh yeah, relaxed performance, relaxed performance. But why would you want to go to an uptight performance? Why would you want to sit in your chair? Why can't you just literally have that freedom? So yeah, you're not only an actor, Chris. You're also a writer, and you are writing the pantomime for. I've got to get this right. Theatre Royal, Barry St Edmunds. Yes. See, I've I've learnt that one. Thank you, Thank you very much. <laughs> and this year you're doing Snow White, and yeah. it's J- Dame Judy's first ever uh, pantomime. I've heard so. Yeah, so obviously in, in Snow White you have a magic mirror which the evil queen has, and she looks into the mirror, and it you know it gives her answers to questions. And I wrote it as just. Um, it's a physical prop and I wanted one of the members of the acting company to record a voiceover. Uh, and then the director called me in March and said, I think we can get Dame Judy Dench to record the voiceover. <laughs> and I said he was absolutely certifiably crackers. But she's um, she's the lifetime patron of the theatre and she's done things like um, a question and answer session uh, there for, to raise money for the theatre. So they've got a connection with her. And they called her and she said, yeah, she was very happy. So she might not be on stage, but nope. you will hear her. You will hear her, which is great. Um, I'm really interested uh, about how can we change negative stereotypes with new writing because there are negative stereotypes. You have got like the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. There's that, that whole thing with Disney at the moment with that character should be cast with um, Dwarfism, but they haven't and all this kind of stuff. So I'm just really interested about changing negative stereotypes with new writing. Yeah. Um, um, 
a panto is a, is a very old form of theatre and it's your job as the writer to keep trying to push it forward and keep it evolving and keep it changing. So I've been doing it for 13 years now and the first panto that I did was uh, Sleeping Beauty. And um, the first stereotype I encountered in that was, was how uh, female characters are stereotyped. So the princesses in Panto, when I started, they didn't get involved in any of the fun or the fighting or the action. They were really there to look pretty, to sing prettily. And if you're a six-year-old girl sat in the audience, it's not great to be shown that that's all that a female character can be. It's just how they look and how they sound when they sing. You want to see that that character can have as much fun as any other character in the show. Uh, and in that production of Sleeping Beauty, at the end of Act One, Sleeping Beauty is put to sleep for a hundred years under a curse. And then in that production that I did, she was asleep for the whole of the second half. And it was right at the end of the second half that the prince woke her up. So she's the title character. The, the show was yeah. called Sleeping Beauty, and she wasn't in it for half of it. And she was she had she was completely passive. So we're doing Sleeping Beauty at Wakefield this year. And what I've written in is that at the end of Act One, Sleeping Beauty, as per the fairy tale, falls to sleep for 100 years. But then at the beginning of Act Two, you wake her up and then the bad fairy is outraged. So she steals the prince who's woken Beauty with a kiss. She takes him away and she puts him under a love spell and okay. she makes him fall in love with her. And then it's up to Sleeping Beauty to go and save the prince. So they Brilliant. kind of both save each other. And in the way that the prince put Beauty with a kiss, Beauty then breaks the love spell the prince is under by kissing him. So there's a complete equality yeah. between those two characters. So I'd say, first and foremost, yeah, kind of gender stereotyping is, is something that I've encountered and wanted to, to kind of uh, get rid of and, and advance. Um, but there's also there's other kinds of representation. So I did a, a version of uh, Robin Hood. Uh, last year for Barry St Evans and it was the first time I'd written a gender neutral character into the show so we had Will Scarlet and when the Sheriff of Nottingham who was a real old straight white guy clearly read the Daily Mail when he encountered her uh, he said young lady she said I'm not a young lady he said what you're not a man said, I'm not a man either I'm just Will and he was as a character he was confounded by that but it's good to present that to an audience I'd like to in the future maybe next year do a panto where you have uh, a same sex love story so, you know, two male characters or two female characters, because that's the way the world is. And you see on Strictly Come Dancing, it's great. All those different kinds of permutations of couple, that show reflects to an audience what the world is actually like. And I think Panto as, a, as a, an art form that is there predominantly for children. You've got a duty to show them this is what the world is like. Let's see all the variety that's there. No, certainly. It goes on to my next question, actually about that is it time that old-fashioned pantomimes characters are gotten rid of and new pantomimes created or is it okay to just bring new ideas to old stories so could i ask what you mean by old-fashioned characters what i mean by that is that there's that stereotypical characters um that are like captain hurts the bad guy but in all honesty i feel that Peter Pan's also a bad guy. So is it time that like Captain Hook gets a bit more praise, actually, and stuff like that? It's a really good question. And my approach to that is kind of at the heart of how I try and write the panto. So um, they're very old stories and they're full of uh, stock characters. So you'll always have a dame. You'll always have a comic who's the dame's psychic. You'll always have a baddie. You'll always have a, a principal boy and a principal girl, a prince and a princess. Your job as the writer is to take those characters and take those stories and reinvent them 
and make them relevant to the world that we live in now and find parallels and resonances that, that chime with the world that we live in. When you're approaching any sort of panto, I think an audience has certain expectations. So for Dick Whittington, they will expect Dick to go to London. They'll expect to see rats. If it's Jack and the Beanstalk, they'll expect a beanstalk and they'll expect a giant. And as the writer, it's your job to satisfy those expectations, but also to give the audience something they're not expecting and to to reinvent it. For example, you mentioned uh, Snow White. Uh, I had a conversation very early on with the director uh, and he said that he didn't want to have um, dwarfs in the production because the dwarf characters in Snow White are there to be laughed at for the way that they are different. Difference isn't there to be laughed at, difference is there yeah. to be celebrated. So we felt the easiest thing was to have Snow White meet a bunch of people, but to meet a different bunch of people. So it's it doesn't say it on the poster, it just says Snow White, but really it should be called Snow White and the Seven Scouts because she meets a scout troop in the forest who are like the the dwarves in the Disney film. They're hardworking, dependable, trustworthy, they're loyal. We wanted a, a parallel, people that had all those qualities, and we thought that a scout troop might kind of work in that way. And yeah, you've got to do it with every single story. You've got to find what's the spin, what makes it relevant. Um, Jack and the Beanstalk that we did at Wakefield about four years ago, uh, the theatre in Wakefield had just been made a, a theatre of sanctuary. So they're a place that's particularly welcoming to refugees and asylum seekers. And I wanted to explore that a little bit in the story. So in that Jack and the Beanstalk, everybody was afraid of the giant because they've been told he was this huge, cruel, monstrous bully who lived on the cloud. And if they didn't keep paying money, he'd come down and destroy. And they just heard fee, fi, fo, fum. But when Jack actually goes to the cloud, he finds that the giant is actually being kept prisoner by the baddie. And he's not shouting fee, fi, fo, fum. He's actually shouting, I need someone. He was someone who wanted a friend. And the baddie had kind of made everyone think he was he was a monster because he was different to them. And like I say with the, the dwarfs in Snow White, you should never laugh at difference. And sometimes people are scared of difference. So I had the giant come down the beanstalk, meet the villagers, and he wanted to have sanctuary. And that was how I tied it into the theatre being a theatre sanctuary. And he was then given asylum in, you know, in Wakefield. I called it Quakefield because his voice, was, the giant's voice was so loud it caused earthquakes. So it's always that. It's always an audience comes to see Jack and the Beanstalk, Dick Whittington. They've got an expectation. They want to see that story. But your job is to put a twist on it, make it different, make it relevant to now. And that's how I try and push the stories forward every year and change them. That's brilliant. Disabled representation on stage is still low. As a writer and an actor, how do you think this could be improved? In panto particularly or in kind yeah. of theatre in general? Um, in panto first and then let's go theatre in general. Yeah, there are, there are obviously companies who are, their, their central aim is either having casts who are exclusively disabled or integrating disabled performers into shows with non-disabled performers. So I'm thinking we're here today at Mind the Gap where you have a, a permanent disabled ensemble of performers. But then you've got companies like uh, Ramps to the Moon. Yeah, that Ramps to the Moon. Theaters, yeah, where yeah. They, they have an integrated cast. And then you've got uh, theatres like Leeds Playhouse where they've started doing a lot of shows with uh, BSL signing integrated into the performances. And also uh, Doncaster, their panto is BSL integrated. They have a character who is 
uh, a BSL signing character. That level of integration, take integration as an example, um, there's an extra, and I mentioned it earlier, funding, there's an extra financial implication. It takes longer to rehearse. It takes longer to prepare. Um, there's more access needs that you have to meet. And so I, I think, I, I wonder if mainly it does come down to money and why some theatres are reluctant to do more integrated performances is it, 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 it there might be an extra cost involved. And I think, again, it comes down to if there were a greater level of subsidy available to theatres to help them meet the extra costs of integrated productions, they might be more willing to to take that risk. And if it's there's an incentive, you, you do it more. So I, I do wonder um, if it comes down to a bit more money yeah and it's it's kind of sad that like usual it all comes down to money and yep. um, and willingness yeah and the willingness to change because the whole point is I think what theatres don't realise is if you have more disabled people on your stages more people actually will turn up and it makes it more of the inverted commas norm I think a lot of the time it's that fear um, that you're not going to get an audience in because it's not been done before. Um, it's not been done before because no one's taken that chance. And if you take a chance, then Strictly Come Dancing, prime example, they had Rosie, um, who is a deaf actress, and it became the norm and they done this beautiful moment. I went to see the Doncaster show last year and that's another prime example of the main character who is deaf. There was a child in the audience and I saw this and it was beautiful. Just was like, that's me on stage. It's that thing of if you're helping children see themselves on stage, it's going to stop this negative stereotyping that keeps happening. And theatre has a beautiful opportunity to help this, but... Because of funding and because the negative narrative still goes out about disability, we are, theatres and casting directors, and it does feel this, are scared. There are some beautiful companies and theatres, Leeds Playhouse, Doncaster, like you said, Sheffield is another prime example of doing great work. Um, the Egg Theatre in Bath, I really want to praise them because... Yep. One of our actors are in the show down there this year. So there are a lot of companies that are doing it, but it needs to become more of the norm. And actually, we need to have more directors and producers and writers that are disabled as well, because if that happens, then we can actually say, well, yeah, we're going to cast that because that's their norm as well. So I think you're exactly right about it being the creative team, being disabled themselves, and then it, and then it, it feeds through. Sheffield Crucible Leeds Playhouse they are fantastic at access and representation. They're also, as opposed to slightly smaller theatres, that yeah. I, I wonder if it maybe does come down to a bit of money sometimes. Is they're better funded, and with you, like you said, if only theatres would take more of a chance. I do wonder if in some people's minds that chance equates to a risk as well, and sort of coming out of austerity and then coming out of COVID, audiences not going back. I think theatres are so afraid to take a risk. But you're right that 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 risk has to be taken. Otherwise, things won't change. Exactly. Um, What is your 
favourite pantomime character of all time, and it can't be the Dame. <laughs> That's the one rule I've got, is it can't be the Dame characters. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I think that the first panto that I ever wrote was Jack and the Beanstalk, and I think because of that reason, it's got quite a special place in my heart. And I think the story of Jack and Jack and the Beanstalk, kind of it really sums up the story that's at the heart of all pantos, which is about a hero's journey. It's about someone going from zero to hero because Jack's a child and him and his mum are kind of, they're, they're struggling for money and no one thinks that Jack's worth all that much as a person. And it's, he has to set out and, pr and prove that he can, you know, win the day. And he's literally got to climb a beanstalk and face a giant. So when you put a, an actor against a, a huge giant puppet, you've got, you've got Panto summed up there, you know, standing up to the big guy. And I think kids really enjoy that. And so I think for summing up the essence of a, a kid seeing themselves represented on stage as someone who can be a hero, Jack and the Beanstalk really encapsulates that. And having said that, I wonder if there's a version of Jack and the Beanstalk where Jack is disabled and where people don't expect that he can climb a beanstalk and take on a giant. And it's all about completely confounding that expectation. That'd be great. I mean, my one it has to be either Cinderella or Dick Winton. I was in Panto, down in Dorset. Um, and that's why I love Panto so much. So which which character? Do you mean those stories or? Uh, no. So I was um, I was on the ensemble cast for both of those shows. Okay. And in one in Cinderella, we actually had a white horse at the when Cinderella goes off to the ball. So we actually had a horse on stage. An actual real horse. An actual real horse we had. Now tell me, did the horse have a poo on stage? No, but it was always outside. <laughs> it was the most funniest thing ever. And we were only allowed, to, they had the horse cart in and we had to get him in right at the beginning, like end of the first half, get him in and then get out. It was the most, and I was always behind the horse. So oh, no. we always had that fear. If this horse does one, we're in the danger zone. We're in the danger zone. Yeah. So uh, that's why I love Panto. It's just, <laughs> I really want to go back into Panto, so, yeah. Next question. Yeah. If you were creating a brand new pantomime character, please can you describe them to us? Yeah, I was, yeah it's interesting on this. Um, so like I said earlier, Panto is full of kind of stock characters and you're always going to get, whichever Panto, you're always going to get the same old characters. But over the last couple of years, I put a kind a, a, a new sort of character into a couple of them and it's the person who pretends to be a hero but isn't really. And it came out of again, like I said earlier, thinking about how can you, um, how can you make Panto reflect the world we're living in. And I thought coming out of Brexit, when you had all these Tory MPs who were saying to working class people, Brexit will make your life better, and arguably it's really not. And they were posing as the hero of the working people, and it turned out that a lot of them were feathering their own nests. I came up with this idea of. Um, the character who pretends to be a hero but isn't. So the version of Robin Hood that I wrote for Barry St. Edmunds last Christmas, you meet at the top of the show Robin Hood and he comes out and he looks like Robin Hood. He's got the green tights and the <laughs> pointy feathered hat and he sings Let Me Entertain You, Robbie Williams. Okay. And he's got adoring fans and he slaps his thigh and he's a bit cheesy. But then as the show goes on, you find out that really he's working with the Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh. And the Sheriff's putting up money and taxing everyone a ridiculous amount. But he's had this idea that if he invents or get, if pays an actor to pose as a hero who says, don't worry, bear with me, I'm going to get your money back, that there will never be a rebellion. So he's using this fake hero to keep people in place. And it worked 
really well, you know, because an audience were quite shocked when they found out that Robin Hood isn't really the hero. He was, you know, <laughs> the bad in cahoots. Guy. Yeah. And then it ended up being the dame's son, who was this young boy who worked in a bakery, who kind of unmasked okay. Robin Hood. And then he got to go on the journey, like Jack yeah. and Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. He got to them, he went from zero to hero and he took down this fake Robin Hood. And it, it, it was nice. It felt really different and quite fresh. And so, yeah, I suppose that's my that is your... contribution to the world of <laughs> Cool. And uh, what's your next panto that you're going to be working on? So there are there are two. So there's like you said, there's Theatre Bury St Edmunds where I've written uh, Snow White, and then we've got Dame Judy Dench. Uh, I, it's frustrating because I because of working in Wakefield, I don't get to go to rehearsals in Bury St Edmunds because ah, they overlap. Yeah. Uh, so I don't get to go to the read through on day one. I don't get oh. to go to the dress rehearsals or the opening <laughs> night. I have to wait until we finished in Wakefield and they run for a week longer. Okay. So I then in January get to go down and it's fantastic to see, but you know, yeah. by that point they've done 2,500 performances or whatever. So they're exhausted. And I was like, I'd like to see it right at the beginning when they were still shiny and new and fresh, but they're still fantastic. So I'll get to go down to Bury St Edmunds and see Snow White. And then in Wakefield, it's uh, Sleeping Beauty. And we start rehearsals for that in three weeks. And then it's 12 shows a week for six weeks. And... Yep, because your start date, I'm going to try and remember, I think it was the 24th of November, I think. Isn't it bad that I don't know this? I've come on your podcast <laughs> and I've not got the information to be able to plug the panto. It's something like that, Paul, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please look on Wakefield's uh, website, um, which I haven't got, but we will put on to our clip at the bottom to say what their website is. So... And what other work are you working on at the moment? So you've got these two, but is yep. there any plans for 2024? Um, well, you never stop working on Panto. So I'm already starting work on next year's Pantos. So uh, at Bury St Edmunds, it's going to be Aladdin. Okay. And in terms of representation, that's a really interesting one because you've got Aladdin, um, it's ridiculous. Aladdin as a story comes from the Arabian Nights. Yeah. So, you know, those names, Aladdin, Abanaza, they're Persian, Iranian names. Uh, but for some reason, at some point in the late 20th, 19th century, they decided to start setting Aladdin in China. And that stuck. And you've had, even till like last year, you've had uh, companies of completely white Caucasian actors pretending to be Chinese characters and putting slightly inappropriate makeup around their eyes to make them look more oriental and having quite offensive racial names. So that's, you can't, quite rightly, the way that Aladdin is done has got to be changed wholesale. Yeah. So, And we've been having quite a lot of discussions in our early planning meetings with Barry St. Edmunds recently. So the version that I'm working on now for next year will be set in Arabia, where the story comes from. And it will use um, colorblind casting, but we are aiming to do a, a huge amount of casting from the global majority. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, that's obviously really important. So yeah, so I, I'm literally uh, I'm starting work on that now. And then in terms of acting, at the minute I'm in a show at uh, the Sheffield Crucible, The Hypochondriac, which is on for another week. So it's been great. It's, I'm very busy, which is you know, as an actor and a writer, as a freelancer, it's always great to be busy. Touch wood, hope it continues. Yeah, definitely, and. Uh... Thank you so much for doing this podcast. You're actually performing uh, tonight. I've got a show tonight, yeah. So um, this goes out in December, so it'd be two months away from that. But (laughs) have a great show. Thank you. um, So listeners, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. 
I hope you're all well and healthy and enjoy Christmas. And we will see you in 2024. Thank you for listening. We do hope you've enjoyed this episode of Disability And. The Disability And podcast is taking a break for January, so we'll be back in February. Until then, Disability Arts Online and Mind the Gap wish you all a very happy Christmas and New Year.